You're listening to the audio from Life Community Church, located in Alexandria, Virginia. To learn more about our ministry or to financially support God's ministry through us, please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org. Today, Pastor Ryan McAllister will take us through 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 19 in the series The Sling, The Sword, and The Sovereign. We will now join Pastor Ryan McAllister as he brings us the message. It's good to be here with you this morning as we are entering into uh, one of the last messages, one of the last parts of our series through the life of David, and probably one of the most difficult sections of David's life. Last week, we went through one of the most famous parts of his life, his fall with Bathsheba. And now, this week, we are going to be dealing with the consequences of that sin. David has to deal with this for more than a decade. One night, one misstep, as we would like to view it, ends up in 10 years, more than 10 years, of turmoil. This week we are talking about David's broken kingdom. David, for all of the good that we recognize in him, also brings us a great reminder that brokenness, sin, are never quite far from all of us. They're part of our lives. And this is, I'm not going to lie to you, this was, number one, it was a challenge just in general because I'm covering uh, about six chapters of information. And if you know me, I really like to give you guys information. I love to give you the information in Scripture. And so trying to summarize six chapters for you uh, was quite a challenge for me. There's a lot that goes on in this story There's a lot that unfolds, but not only is it challenging in the compression of the information to deliver to you what you need to hear from God's word today, but this is just a challenging section of scripture. The brokenness that is involved in these stories and in this unfolding of what happens from David's sin is some of the most challenging places to put yourself in emotionally. I want to remind us of where we were in 2 Samuel 12, the end of the conclusion of the story of David and Bathsheba, at least in our minds. We think of David and Bathsheba as concluding around chapter 12. And in verses 13 through 14, Nathan the prophet comes to David, and he confronts him. He gives the worst, you are the man uh, phrase ever. Usually when you hear you are the man, that's like, yes, that's amazing. And this time it was like, oh no, Uh, this is not good. And Nathan says, you are the man. And he reminds us that with sin, even when our sin has been put away, even when we have been forgiven, the consequences will still unfold. Verse 13 says, 
I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, by this deed, you have utterly scorned the name of the Lord. There is going to be consequences. Earlier in verse 10, it says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. Yes, David would not lose his life because of his sin, because he repented. He said, I have sinned before the Lord. He gave no excuse like Saul, which by the way, if you didn't come to Bible study this morning, you missed out on some great teaching and reminders of Saul's piddly excuses for his not full obedience, his half-hearted obedience to the Lord. But David wasn't like that. David, the thing that we often think of with David is not just that he was a good king, but when he messed up, he went ahead and said, I did it. I have no excuse. And that's something that we can admire within him, but we've still got to deal with the consequences of sin because sin always has consequence. And so we come to chapter 13. I'm not going to lie, this chapter is hard. It is hard because it is very blunt about what happens. And the Bible, the Bible does not shy away from the failings of the people whom it describes. And what we will see here is the king's broken children. Let's go ahead and pick up in chapter 13. And I'm going to read to you a couple of verses. And I've highlighted three characters that we're going to talk about. Three people. Sometimes I struggle. I say characters, uh, but they're people. These are historical individuals. These are real people, not just ideas or not just tropes. These are real people, which is what makes this chapter so difficult. Now, Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah. David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Oh, son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. In this section, this chapter, we have three main characters other than David. We have Amnon. Amnon is the firstborn son of David. His name means faithful, stable. He was first in line to the throne. He was born in Hebron when David was made king before he had gone to Jerusalem. And what we find out about Amnon is that he does not live up to his name. In fact, each one of the, these characters, these people, they do not unfortunately live up to their name. They 
end up being the opposite. Amnon is not faithful. He is not stable. He is consumed by lust. Notice, Amnon said, I love Tamar. But my friends, lovesick, this love that Amnon had, it's not love. Love is not always love. Sure, you could call it love all you want. Amnon could say he was in love with Tamar all he wants, but we get a clue about what Amnon's really after when he describes Tamar as Absalom's sister. Now, Amnon and Tamar and also Absalom They were half-siblings. Absalom and Tamar were full siblings. They had the same mother and the same father. Amnon had a different mother than Absalom and Tamar. So it was his half-sister. But it's interesting that he says it's Absalom's sister. And he was frustrated because he couldn't do anything about his lovesick nature with Tamar. And why is that? Well, number one, In the law of God, you are not to have your sister as a lover. This is completely against the law of God, so that prevents it. But also, Absalom. Amnon knows something about Absalom, that he is protective of his beautiful sister. What we begin to see through this story is that David, his sin of lusting after Bathsheba, it worsens in his son Amnon. Because this lovesick, quote-unquote, man Amnon, he schemes along with his cousin Jonadab. It's kind of unclear whether Jonadab really knows what Amnon's after, but he gives him quite a crafty plan. He tells him, hey, you know, your dad's not going to withhold her from you if you just say, I don't feel well. I'd love for my sister to, to make me some food in front of me and feed me by hand. This was a way that he could get Tamar alone, away from Absalom, away from the rest, so that he could do what he wanted to do. David's lust and adultery came through to his son, to lust and rape. The daughter of David, which is interesting in this passage, it it, uh, doesn't describe her that way. It always describes her in relationship to Absalom and Amnon. But Tamar, her name means palm tree. It's a signifier of her beauty. She is a beautiful young girl. And trees are meant to be fruitful. She was the virgin daughter of David. Her robes that she wore, they were a signifier of her place in the court as an unmarried daughter of the king. She was one to be protected. She was one to be preserved and loved and cared for. But her brother Amnon violated her. Take a look at verses 19 and 20b. 
And, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. So Tamar lived a desolate woman. Amnon wanted Tamar. He took her violently. There is, and by the way, in the scripture, there is no ambiguity about this. This is a violent rape of a young girl. And she's left desolate. The one who was meant to be fruitful now had none. She was overpowered, defiled, and in no way held responsibility for what happened, but still had to bear the consequences for the rest of her life. It is heartbreaking to read this story. The last you hear of Tamar is that she goes to live with her brother Absalom in his house, a desolate woman. The last hint we get of Tamar is Absalom's daughter, whom he names after her. But that brings us to our third player, Absalom. His name means, my father is peace. He was the third born son of David. The second born of David, Shilab, possibly died. We don't really know. There's nothing given to us about what happened to him, but he's not in the picture. And Absalom is assumed to be the next in line after Amnon. Absalom was a handsome, politically savvy individual. He was much like his father. If you remember when David was described as a young man, he was a good-looking young man. There's a difference, though, with Absalom from David. There's no real indication that Absalom feared the Lord. There's no real indication that Absalom loved the Lord like David did. David went and faced the giant with a sling and the Lord at his side. That's all he needed. He didn't need anything else. But Absalom, Absalom doesn't seem to have that characteristic in David. But he does share another thing with his father. Murder. You see, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he decided to cover it up. Let's figure out a way to cover up this adultery. Don't want the shame to be public. And so he goes ahead and has Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed. Sure, he doesn't do it by his hand, which is another thing that Absalom shares in common with David. But David is responsible nonetheless. David gives the order. He murders Uriah. And Absalom, his hatred of Amnon consumes him. Because what Amnon did to his sister was evil. And I will admit, when I read this story, I'm a lot more with Absalom right now. I feel the way that Absalom does. I want justice to be done. But take a look at what 
verses 21 through 22 say. When King David heard of all these things about Amnon raping Tamar, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. He hated Amnon. This wasn't just, I don't like him. He didn't want anything to do with him. He didn't say one thing to him. I guess the implication of David's anger is that he yelled, he, he outburst at Amnon, but Absalom stood there stone-faced. And I don't know about you, but you need to be afraid when you know you've done something wrong and someone who should be upset is just stone-faced. That's worse than the outburst of anger. Something is brewing in the heart of that person. And for two years, Absalom bided his time. Maybe he was waiting for his father to do something. But there's no indication that Absalom ever goes to David and says, the law of God is clear. When this happens, a punishment is to be given. What are you going to do with Amnon? Maybe he did. Maybe he went and pleaded with David. We don't know. All we know is that for two years, Amnon, or Absalom stewed in his hatred for his brother. And then he schemed and he made this plan to murder him. Fine, my father's not going to punish him. No problem. I'll make sure Amnon gets what he deserves. Absalom throws this sheep-shearing party. It's a family get-together. First tries to get his father to come along. Dad's like, listen, if you have the king come along, it's a lot of burden to you. It's going to be very expensive. Don't worry about me. Maybe he knows that there's some family tension. Absalom's not talking to Amnon. There's a whole thing going on here. Maybe he knows about that, and he just doesn't want to be around the tension. But then Absalom says, oh, but father, if you can't come, please let my brother Amnon come. David's not stupid. He must have had an inkling, a knowing that something's about to happen. But maybe David just thought the best of his son. And he said, well, no, he would never do such a thing. Maybe he's trying to reconcile with Amnon. And so all the sons of David, they go off on this family trip. Oh, isn't it wonderful? Absalom brought his boys along with him, his servants, and he tells them, when my brother Amnon is good and full of wine, wait for my signal and strike. You'll know when to do it. So they get Amnon drunk, they strike him, they kill him. The sons of David all flee. They're like, oh, I'm getting out of here. Absalom doesn't care about them. He's a man on a mission. He is accomplishing his objective. He kills his brother, and he flees as well. He flees to his grandfather's kingdom in Gesher. And he stays there for three years. You see, David murdered Uriah to cover his lust, but Absalom's hatred had overtaken him and turned into murder. Not of someone outside of his family, but of his own brother. 
the heir to the throne of David. Now you might notice that I added that heir to the throne of David because maybe it's not just his hatred, but also his political savvy. He understands, I'm not going to let this rapist be the king. You kidding? No, I'm going to be a much better king than Amnon ever could. Guess who's in line next to be king after Amnon? Well, it just happens to be me. What a pleasant surprise. I get to kill my sister's rapist and I get to be next in line to be king. David's broken children were all consequence of David's sin. I have to wonder about the parenting style of David because it's not really told to us other than these stories and we're not given anything clear, but it seems very, very apparent that David had a problem with the way he parented his children. He seemed to give in to them. When Amnon came to him and said, oh, please let my sister make some cakes for me and feed me. I'm so sick. David's like, all right. Oh, Father, if you can't come, won't, won't Amnon come with me? All right. You wonder about David the father. Absalom's name meant my father is peace, but... Absalom would now bring turmoil and war to his father's kingdom. The king's broken kingdom. I'm going to try to summarize. This was, that was just one chapter, by the way. I'm about to try to summarize four chapters for you. So bear with me. Buckle up. Here we go. I'm going to do my best not to keep us here for three hours. Chapter 14. After three years in Gesher with his grandfather, Absalom returns. Absalom returns because Joab, who is the commander of David's army, recognizing, recognizes that there is a political problem that they have. The heir to the kingdom is in another kingdom. Not good. Also, Absalom, kind of a popular guy. He's good looking, he's savvy. We need to get him back, okay? We need to go. If you're not going to treat him as guilty, then at least welcome him back. Don't keep him exiled. So Joab comes up with this scheme where he uses a wise woman in disguise as a grieving mother to convince David to gather Absalom from his exile. Verse, uh, chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Now Joab, the son of Zorah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom, and Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. You'll notice this throughout the life of David, that there are these echoes that happen. And there's almost this echo of Nathan going to David and telling him of his sin, where the Lord puts the words into Nathan's mouth. Now Joab is thinking that he can play that role, that he could go ahead and put the words in the mouth of this wise woman. 
and convince the king to do what he believes is the right thing to do. Joab is obviously concerned about the Davidic kingdom, and he knows that Absalom is a popular guy. And so he wants to get him back. This scheme works. It's able to kind of twist David's arm. He's like, okay, I get it. I see what you're doing. He kind of sees through. He's like, listen, you're, you're probably from Joab, aren't you? Yeah, okay. All right, I see. I see what you're saying. All right, bring, bring Absalom back. David reluctantly forgives Absalom. Although forgiveness might be too harsh of a word, although it's an official thing that happens. Not harsh of a word, but too strong of a word. Read uh, verses 21 and 24 of chapter 14. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Hmm. So Joab's scheme sort of worked. It at least got Absalom inside the kingdom, but not into the king's presence. There's no real forgiveness. You know, you would expect... You know, you, we read in the, in the beginning that, that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And we're sort of led to believe that maybe that means that he's kind of forgiven him, but he has not. It's possible what that means is that he meant he desired to go out to him and, and do something, but he was restrained. He didn't really know what to do. He may have been conflicted about what to do, but Joab was like, I'm going to force his hand to do something. David allows Absalom to return to the capital, but not to his house. David avoided the problem by neither treating Absalom as guilty nor as innocent. Absalom was in between. This causes great frustration for Absalom. You see, Absalom, he won a resolution. But he only got further suspension, which probably felt like humiliation. It would have been better to just stay in Gesher. I don't know why you even brought me back here if you're not going to let me live in the house or come into your presence. What are you doing? Joab was frustrated, or uh, Absalom was frustrated. See, Absalom's, Joab's, and David's attempts at fixing their problems only seem to always make them much, much worse. Much like our own attempts to fix our own problems. We come up with great schemes to fix our sin, don't we? We come up with great ways to hide, great ways to make things right in our eyes, but all we ever seem to do is make things worse. We're going to see just how worse things get. Chapters 15 through 17 describe a civil war that happens in the house of David. Absalom's rebellion. Chapter 15, verses 13 through 14, we learn that Absalom stole Israel's hearts. 
And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Absalom devised this scheme where he was going to be talking with the people as they were coming to get judgments from David. Remember, part of being a king meant that you were the supreme court. So you would often hear disputes. If a people, if a person did not like the judgment that was given by a local judge, they would go, all right, fine, we're going to the supreme court, we're going to the king, he'll give us justice. And so Absalom actually stayed outside of the gates and was like, wow, man, you know, that King David, like, he just, he's just not really hearing the people, man. Like, like you, like you, your problem, it is, it's so just what you're saying. Oh, you, oh, your problem too. It's so just, and you should receive justice. I wish that King David would do such a thing. If only there were a judge in Israel that could give true justice. Absalom was smart. He knew how to butter people up. He reminds me of a modern-day politician telling us everything we want to hear, tickling our ears, getting us excited, lying the whole time just to get what they want. Absalom plotted and schemed for four years. He did this, turning the people against David, bit by bit. I'll give Absalom this. The dude is patient. He is methodical, and he is seeing his plans through. Waited two years to kill Amnon. Waited four years to turn the people's hearts. Okay. I guess David did one thing with Absalom, right? He taught him patience. Just patience in the wrong things is the only problem. This causes eventually the commotion to reach the ears of David. And David has to retreat from Jerusalem in sorrow. This was the darkest day of David's reign. He flees Jerusalem. He goes up, Mount, um, up the Mount of Olives. And if that sounds familiar, it's a place where the son of David had his darkest day as well. This scene where David is weeping and going to the Mount of Olives is connected to Jesus Christ going to the Mount of Olives and praying and weeping. But the scene is capped with Ahithophel. Ahithophel. Now you're like, Ahithophel. Uh-huh. Who's that? Don't worry. Ahithophel is an advisor to David. And Ahithophel was like the best advisor. He was the most amazing, most wise, the shrewdest guy. You know, we'd seen some crafty people in the past, but there was no one like Ahithophel. In fact, it says in the scripture that Ahithophel's word was like God's words. When he gave advice, you listened. But at the Mount of Olives, David hears Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. I got to imagine that 
there's two options here. David just believed God so much that he could ask him to do such a thing. Or it was just a desperate plea in a desperate moment, in a sorrowful moment. Oh, God, just turn his advice. I know he's like the wisest dude. He's the craftiest guy. Just turn it into foolishness. I don't know how, but just please. David actually writes about this in Psalm 41.9. It says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. If that sounds familiar, it's because it's the same passage used to describe Judas when Judas betrays Christ. A close friend who ate bread lifted his heel against Christ. But there's a little turn here. In the midst of this sorrow, there are several people that come to David, that join with David, that stay with David. David is not completely alone. He has friends. And he's able to set up a spy within Absalom's court as a way to hopefully get information, but also to kind of guide the process so he's not completely allowed to, Absalom's not completely allowed to do anything unhindered. David can't do anything militarily right now, so he's using a spy. Verse, uh, chapter 16, verses 32 through 34, and then 17, verse 14. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, if you go with me, you will be a burden to me. Now, this is probably because he is an older man, and he probably doesn't move as well. It's going gonna, it's gonna to slow David down. So he's like, listen, you're, gonna be a, you're just going to add to my burdens if you come with me. But, verse 34, if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. And this is what happens. There's an incident where Ahithophel goes to and gives counsel to Absalom. And he's saying, this is what you ought to do. But this spy is able to turn that, and it actually saves David's life. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai, the the archite, is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Really? Remember, Ahithophel, his counsel was supposed to be like the word of God. How did that happen? For the Lord had ordained the defeat to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. Here's what's really interesting. Ahithophel's advice is really good. Strategically, on point. But Hushai comes in and he's like, ah, I mean, that sounds great, but why don't we do this? It might be a little better. And, you know, you think about it and you go, hmm, who should I listen to? Ahithophel, word of God advisor, or this guy Hushai who's old and he's got dirt on him and stuff. For whatever reason, well, I'll tell you the reason, the Lord ordained it. You think you can act against the sovereign will of God? God holds the heart of the king, his heart in his hand. He turns it whichever way he wants. 
we get to another dark day for David. And this is, I originally I was going to go through chapter 19, but we're going to stop here in chapter 18 because there's some really good things to, to pull from these chapters. And I want to do that in a concise way for you here at the end. But let's cover this last chapter, Absalom's Ruin. Because of the counsel that Hushai gave that allowed David to escape unscathed, David was eventually able to organize his military. A lot of really interesting things that go into that. You might be like, well, that sounds boring. It's actually very interesting if you go into it and what David is doing. He's organizing his military. David was a keen military mind, and he knew how to win. But he also ordered mercy. David, remember, if you remember back into chapters, uh, in chapter 9, in chapter 8, David's kingdom is described as one of justice and righteousness. And in chapter 9, we learn that David's kingdom is also one of mercy. And this is supposed to be giving us a full picture of what God's kingdom is like. And when David's kingdom was good, it was very good. And David, he was trying desperately to get back to that. He wanted to provide justice by organizing his military so that the usurper could not stand upon the throne. But he wanted to give mercy to his son. David. David had already lost two sons. Two sons. I am not a parent, but I have seen parents who lose their children. And it is not anything that I would ever wish upon anyone and to lose his children because of what he has done and David knows this it is because of his sin that Amnon is dead that the unnamed child of Bathsheba is dead not to mention the other children that he lost Shileab for dying for reasons we don't know about Another son lost would be almost too awful for any parent to handle. So he wanted mercy for his son. The battle is interesting. They fight in a forest. And this forest, it actually says that the forest fell more men than the battle. This was a smart, strategic move by David. Absalom had more men. David had less. So he had to use something to give them an advantage. What did he use? The terrain. Very smart. But then Absalom was caught and executed. As much as I sympathized with Absalom in chapter 13, by this point, Absalom had gone so far off the rails and so far away from righteousness that we have to see him and understand that his vanity, 
his own pride, it was going to cause his downfall at some point. He had no humility in him. We're told that Absalom, his, a part of his handsomeness, we're told, is that he had this long bit of hair. Now, you know, for us, we're like, long hair. I mean, some people, I guess, like that, but not very many people in our culture like men with super long hair. Um, but Absalom, man, he had a mane about him. He had beautiful, thick, long hair. And you got to think, I, I don't know if you guys, many of you are football fans, but uh, Troy Palamalu was known for his hair. He was a safety for the Steelers. He actually did a whole bunch of commercials for like Head and Shoulders or something, or it's Pantene or some like hair commercials and stuff. But I always wondered, with that long mane flowing outside of his helmet, why no one at any point wasn't just like, Cheek. <laughs> I mean, just it's just a simple, you don't, you could, you could just kind of do it like subtly. Oh no, I accidentally did it. Like, I, it must have happened like once or twice. I imagine that it had to have happened. But Absalom, as he's running from this battle in this forest, his long hair, symbol of his pride and his beauty and his arrogance and himself, his vanity, it's caught in the trees. It's kind of described. It's comedic to me. I don't know if it's meant to be comedic, but it's kind of comedic to me. He gets caught, and his donkey just keeps going. Like, it, it's, it's like a cartoon almost. The mule's just like, man, I, I don't care. <laughs> I'm just going to keep going. But there's something in this passage that's it's kind of interesting. It says that he's caught on a tree branch. He's hanging midair in a tree. If you remember, in God's law, to hang upon a tree is a curse by God. Those who are hung on trees are cursed by God. You see, in this, it was not the military might or strategy of David. It was not how good of a general David was, although he was great. It was the sovereignty of God that eventually became the downfall of Absalom. Because just as the way that God turns the heart of the king, he also holds the life of the king in his hands, just as he holds all of our lives. He was suspended in midair, symbolizing God's curse upon him through his vanity. Joab hears about this because some people come upon him, and Joab's like, and what'd you do? Well, the king said not to kill him. Well, I would have given you 10 pieces of silver. I would have given you a belt. Which, by the way, I, it's kind of funny. Like, I hear that as a modern person. I'm like, a belt? To kill someone? I don't know. It's got to be a really cool belt. I don't know. It must, maybe it was the coolest belt in the whole world. I don't know. Maybe it could hold everything. All the things that you ever wanted. It could not just hold your pants up. It could hold everything you ever wanted around. It must have been the most amazing belt. But they're like, no, no, no. The king said, don't harm him. And Joab's like, all right, fine. If you guys won't do it, I'm going to do what needs to be done. This is the same Joab, remember, who devises this scheme to get Absalom back into Jerusalem. Maybe Joab felt guilty about that. 
that his scheme didn't work to bring about peace, or maybe Joab just really believed that he always knew what was the right thing to do. And by right, I don't mean righteous. I mean the correct thing for the situation in order to get the outcome that he wants. Because Joab then takes three javelins, which, by the way, impressive. He picks up three javelins, and he goes. Joab was cool, I guess. Like, we could say that. Joab was a pretty cool guy. He finds Absalom, takes ten guys with him, ten, ten armor bearers with him. He throws three javelins into the heart of Absalom. And I, I, I'll say this, you know, I didn't want to go too deep into too many of the texts, but there were s- several things that just stuck out to me. One of the things that Absalom says to Tamar, that just, it, when you read it, you go, that's such a weird thing to say. He says, after Amnon rapes her, he says, don't take this to heart. And the implication, I think, is that he's saying, I will. I'm going to take this to heart. And when Joab goes and throws the three javelins into the heart of Absalom, who also stole the hearts of the people, it was all coming full circle. His sin originated in his heart. He cultivated it in his heart. And those javelins pierced his heart. The scripture actually says that he doesn't die until the ten armor bearers come and kill him. So number one, I mean, I feel like if you get three javelins to the heart, you should be dead. But they were just like, let's make extra sure. So they kill him. They mangle his body. They don't take him back to Jerusalem. Where they are is outside, across the river, uh, river Jordan, outside the promised land. They take his body mangled and disfigured as it was, pull it down from the tree, throw it into a pit, and then put rocks on top of the pit. Maybe in their minds what they are thinking is that this usurper cannot be in the promised land. He can't go to his father's graves. He can't be buried with his father's. No, not a chance. We're throwing him in the pit. And also, they're like, let's also honor God by saying those that rebel, those that go against their parents, they need to be stoned. So let's put stones over top of this usurper. But then the news gets back to David. And this... This is difficult because the justice and mercy that David so desperately wanted to bring together, it seems that it would always elude David's kingdom from now on. The king's sin would bring him sorrow immeasurable. David's sin had been put away, but its consequences were still devastating. David hears of Absalom's death. And this is what he says. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And you understand why he feels this way. 
even though Absalom tried everything he could to destroy his father. I didn't even go into some of the terrible things that Absalom did when he got into Jerusalem to humiliate and become worse than his father ever was in sin. Ten times worse, in fact. The consequences of sin are devastating. They leave us nothing but brokenness. When we come to this story, it might be tempting to say, all right, why'd you make me go through that? Why'd you make me read this? Why'd you make me hear this? Why'd you make me think about these things? What is the point? Romans 15, 4. Romans 15, 4 reminds us, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. See, there's a broken kingdom for David, a broken kingdom for us, but there is a king who will heal all things. Our kingdoms are broken. Our kingdoms have a singular pervasive problem. They're filled with and led by sinners. Our kingdoms are built on our failures. They all have rotten foundations. Our kingdoms will fall to ruin. They'll decay and turn to dust. But Christ's kingdom, Christ's kingdom brings healing. Christ paid our penalty and renews us by his sacrifice. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. On the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Christ's kingdom is built on his merit. Justice and mercy meet perfectly in Christ's kingdom. Romans 5, 8, and Philippians 3, 9. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember David's cry, Oh, if I could have died for you, my son Absalom. Christ's kingdom is not built upon our merit, but upon Christ's merit. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. We can't do that. We're sinners. That's the big problem with our kingdoms. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The kingdom is established on His merit, not ours. And lastly, Christ's kingdom will stand for eternity. Everything around us will fade. Everything. Take a look around at everything we see here, which took years to build, 
which took sacrifice, it will all fade away. The only thing that we truly have, the only thing that we can truly keep is the Lord. One of my favorite songs right now is by the Sing Team. It's based on Psalm 42. It says, Let my sighs give way to songs that sing about your faithfulness. Let my pain reveal your glory as my only real rest. Let my losses show me all I truly have is you. Because all I truly have is you. Christ's kingdom is eternally secure. Everything else fades, but not Christ's kingdom. Daniel 7, 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. My friends, let your kingdom fall away. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Cling not to your kingdom. Trust in his kingdom. No matter where you are today, the sorrow that is filling your heart, it may feel like it will overcome you. And here's the thing. You can't carry it by yourself. You're not strong enough. But that's okay. Because we have a king who will carry it for you. We have a king where justice and mercy are met, where all our sorrow will be healed, where every tear we cry will be wiped away because of the goodness of our God. Trust him. Abandon your kingdom and come to his. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for its reminder of the hope we have in you. I know that there are those who are here today who may have sorrow that is incalculable, who may be feeling overwhelmed and tossed about by waves that seem to be overtaking their boat and are sinking them. But Lord, I plead with them to put their trust fully in you. to abandon trust in themselves, to abandon trust in their kingdom, to put away their schemes, to leave it all behind and cling only to you and your son. Because it is in your son where justice and mercy have met perfectly. While we were yet enemies of you, we were rebels, we were Absaloms, each and every one of us. And unlike King David, you did die for us. To bring us into relationship with you.
to know you and to find our security and our hope within you because you are a mighty God, a God who saves us, a God who rescues us. And so, Lord, may we cry out to you today, no matter where we are or what we're going through, that we would cling to you and that we would hold on to you because there is no other hope. All we really have is you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Life Community Church Alexandria. We believe that there should be no anonymous Christians, so we would love for you to visit and worship with us on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Please visit www.lifeccalexandria.org for more information. Thank you and God bless.